Thanks for joining us for another installment of Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and our topic of discussion today is a condition that many general practitioners encounter quite frequently, recurrent anal sac disease. Specifically, we're going to be talking about a case of anal sac abscess in a dog with suspected adverse food reaction. Our guest today is veterinary dermatologist and associate professor at The Ohio State University, Dr. Sandra Diaz. You at home can find the article that inspired today's discussion in the January 2023 edition of Clinician's Brief. Hi, Dr. Diaz. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're so excited. Before we jump into this case, uh, I would love it if you could just introduce yourself to the audience, let us know how you got to The Ohio State. Yes, so I am uh, from Chile. So I went to vet school there and there was actually a professor from The Ohio State giving a lecture in Chile when I was finishing vet school. And I got so inspired and I wanted to be just like him. And so it was a long road, but here I am at the Ohio State practicing my dream veterinary dermatology. So yes, it was a long road, but a happy one. That is wonderful. I, you know, I always had a special place in my heart for dermatology too. One of uh, my professors was my absolute pre- favorite professor, uh, Dr. Jim Noxon at, at Iowa State University and, and just instilled a love of the specialty, I think, into all of his students. So, so I'm excited for today's conversation. Honestly, I will tell you, anal sac disease is one of those conditions that like once I got into practice, I feel like I see it all the time, every day. And yet I'm not sure I got a lot of guidance on, you know, really how to address, especially these cases that keep coming back over and over and over again, you know, diving into really deep down diagnostics and trying to prevent the recurrence in some of these. Um, So if we could, I would love it if you would give, you know, your opinion from uh, you know, from the standpoint of a dermatologist about when we first see these cases, how do, when we have non-neoplastic anal sac disease specifically, how do those usually present? Mm-hmm. Yes, you're absolutely right, Elisa. It's a relatively common complaint for small animal practitioners. And it's a topic that's differently neglected. And, you know, I thought about it and I think it's because it's often multifactorial. So they may present with peyanal pruritus, so they will come to us, or they may be chronic diarrhea cases that, you know, may go to internal medicine. So I think it does have a hard time finding a home. And, uh, but as we work on more integrated curriculums, I think it's gonna be easier to address these problems that are relatively common, but then they're difficult to place, right? So do they go to dermatology? Do they go to internal medicine? Does the surgeon need to address this when there are more chronic problems? So I think that's usually what happened and they get completely neglected. You're, you're absolutely right. And then how do we, how do we, how do they present? So for us as dermatologists, the most common complaint is usually perianal pruritus, perianal discomfort, um, scooting, right? The clients notice that uh, at home, 
they may have tenesmus, they, ha they may have dyskesia. So those are the most common complaints. Um, but they, you know, clients sometimes they don't really uh, pinpoint what it is, right? Is it pain? Is it pruritus? Maybe a little bit of both, but perianal discomfort is probably the most common complaint. Is there a way to easily distinguish, you know, anal sac disease from other conditions like perianal fistula when you, you know, first examine them? Yeah, that is, that's a very good question. And um, I feel like some cases with perianal abscesses that may fistulate, sometimes they are uh, misdiagnosed as perianal fistula. So that's a very good question. So I feel like perianal fistulas, they usually have um, a strong breed predilection for German Shepherd dogs. So I always, when it's not a German Shepherd dog, then I will first work up anosac disease. So I think that's kind of my role. So if it's a German Shepherd dog, then with very classical perianal fistulas, that's likely what it is. But if it's a different breed, then I'm a little bit reluctant to jump into like perianal fistula. So I always uh, make sure that I evaluate the RSAC before uh, making a final diagnosis. Yeah, I'm glad that you you brought that up because that was actually kind of my next question was, you know, are there breed or sex predilections for anal sac disease? And, you know, definitely mm -hmm. same with me, German Shepherd, perianal fistula is going to jump like to the top of my differential list right away just from just from reading that in the history. So absolutely. So, you know, it's this the brief relation is very interesting. So you find in textbooks and um, most reports that German Shepherd dogs may be predisposed to anastatic disease. Also, labrador retrievers are often mentioned. But there was this uh, more recent study from the UK. They actually uh, survey a large number of practice in regarding. Uh, patients with anosac disease, recurrent anosac disease. And they found um, that cavaliers, uh, cockapoos, we have all these new breeds now, right? Pichons, mm -hmm. um, chitsus were definitely overrepresented. And brachycephalic dogs have higher odds for anosac disease. And what was really interesting to me is that actually both German Shepherds and Labradors have lower odds in hmm. their studies. So that was an interesting finding. And I wonder if there are like regional differences, right? With genetics, um, with popularity of certain breeds, but certainly, um, definitely we see small breeds, I feel being predisposed, particularly Chihuahuas, right? I feel like we see more often uh, in this breed. And the, the case uh, mm -hmm. was actually a little Chihuahua affected with Disease. Yeah, I practice in uh, Las Vegas and we have a lot of chihuahuas and, and absolutely, I certainly feel just anecdotally that I see recurrent anal sac disease much more frequently in, you know, toy breed dogs and small breed dogs. Um, so how does, does that presentation or how do these, these dogs usually present any differently than animals with anal sac tumors or, or are they different? Yes and no. So the initial presentation may be very similar, right? So anal sac adenocarcinomas are at the same place where a normal anal sac will be. So the initial 
presentation may be very similar. They may have swelling at the perianal area, they may have discomfort, they may be scooting, they may be painful. Um, so most anosac adenocarcinomas are unilateral. So if the mass is large, they may have uh, misshapen stool. So that may be something different that will kind of like, you know, uh, warn us that it may be something different. Um, also, there's a percentage of dogs with anal sac adenocarcinoma that will have paraneoplastic hypercalcemia. Mm -hmm. And then those cases will likely have systemic clinical signs like anorexia, polydipsia, polyuria. They may be weak. Um, they may be lethargic. So those will be a little bit different, but not all, not all animals with anal carcinomas present with those symptoms. So if they do, then it should, uh, you know, be a warning sign for us to investigate a little bit more. And although they are, um, in most cases, unilateral, they may be bilateral. So very important for us to evaluate both. And also very important, you know, sometimes we, especially me as a dermatologist, so our students are really good. So they uh, often will include in rectal examination in their general physical exam. So interestingly, like up to 40% of the cases of anal sac adenocarcinomas are actually incidental findings. Mm -hmm. So very important for, for us to not forget um, evaluating and performing that rectal examination. Yeah, that rectal examination is a really important part of, of the exam. Um, so if you can get it done and it's not too stressful on your patient, you know, definitely something to be doing as often as we can. I know I've found, I've found them previously with, yeah, just incidental finding on palpating the rectal sacs. So um, I have heard differing opinions from dermatologists and um, from, you know, internists on the benefit to cytology of anal gland secretions. So what is your opinion on the benefit of cytology or even culture when we're talking about aspirating anal gland secretions? Yeah, that's that's also a very good question, Alisa. Oh, it's controversial. As you say, there are different opinions. There was um, a really nice study actually done pushing veterinary dermatologists, and they found that um, there wasn't, it was so variable. There was so much individual variation that it's really difficult to pinpoint what is normal, what is abnormal. In that particular study, they included dogs with allergies and allergic dogs with pyoderma. And those dogs were found to have a higher number of cocci bacteria in their anal sac content, but not necessarily associated with clinical disease. So mm -hmm. um, at least their, in their conclusion was that cytology may not, may not be really helpful. So for me, it's, it's so viable, right? The, the, the content itself, right? We can all agree that it doesn't smell pleasant, but other than that, it's very inconsistent, right? The, the uh, consistency, it can be watery, it can be more paste-like, it may be chunky. Uh, the color can vary from brownish to grayish. And so it's difficult for me. The only thing that I will always consider abnormal is the presence of blood. 
So if there's blood in the content, then I would like to investigate a little more. And so, and if you see, uh, you know, abnormal, again, what is normal, what is abnormal is one is difficult to, to interpret. But again, if you do find blood, maybe uh, it may be worth to do cytology, see if you have abnormal type of cells present in your cytology, um, investigate a little more the presence of uh, different type of bacteria, white blood cells that may uh, may help to guide your diagnosis, but unfortunately it will not be diagnostic during, you know, due to the high variability that mm-hmm. we see. Yeah, that's a really good tip though, you know, about the blood. Sometimes I also will, especially if we're seeing these cases back over and over and over again, I'll document, you know, what's, you know, normal for that particular patient. Um, because I think seeing changes over time can be really helpful. Um, you know, especially when we're on different therapies, you had kind of touched, and obviously we're going to talk a lot about food allergy when we get to this particular case, but you had touched on, you know, these cases sometimes have underlying, uh, conditions. So which metabolic and endocrine diseases, uh, can be associated with anal gland disease? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, you know, unfortunately, the cause is unknown, right? So it's, again, I feel like it's often multifactorial. Um, but there are problems that have definitely been associated with recurrent anarsac disease. So like soft stools, right? Or uh, obesity, muscle weakness. So those things are uh, problems that are associated with recurrent anorexic disease. So if we have conditions that present with those problems, like IBD or hypothyroidism, then those animals may predispose to uh, may be predisposed to develop anorexic disease. So we definitely need to recognize them and and address them to prevent reoccurrence. And when you're having a patient that is presenting for recurrent anal sac disease, what is your kind of minimum database? Should we be doing, for instance, a T4 on all of these patients? Yeah, that's a good question. So I feel that it varies a little bit and the cases that present to me may be different than the ones that will present to a general practitioner. But um, I feel like both the diagnosis and management is like twofold, right? So first, to address the anosac problem, saculitis or infection or abscess, and then simultaneously try to identify what is predisposing those patients to reoccur. So um, I, it will depend a little bit of what other comorbidities or, uh, or presenting complaints uh, may be, right? So, for example, if they have soft stools and perianal pruritus, I would likely, as a dermatologist, think of food allergies and start a food elimination trial. But an internist may want to work at IBD first or, you know, pancreas insufficiency, B12, and things that internists do. So, a little bit, depending on, I feel like the presenting clinical signs. So evaluating the patient as a whole will be really important. So twofold, and not just focus on the anal sac disease, but 
what may be predisposing this patient to develop that problem. So when you are going to start that um, uh, hypoallergenic diet, that's one thing that, again, I see a lot of, of different personal preference for. Uh, do you prefer limited ingredient diets to hydrolyzed diets? Or, or how do you go about choosing that when you're putting these animals on a diet trial? That's a freaking question. That's a very good question. So actually, a food elimination trial is, is such a simple concept, right? Change the food. Don't feed anything else. But it's so hard to implement, starting with the food selection. And uh, I feel like, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, there are so many diets available over the counter now. I remember years uh, ago, a lamb and rice diet will be hypoallergenic, right? Because it was very uncommon. But now people can have such a variety of meat sources and they often suspect that their animals may be food allergic. So they switch diets and when they actually come to us, they have tried several diets. And so it's very challenging um, because of that. And also the inability of performing a good dietary history in most cases. So most cases people do not know or the pet had been recently adopted, right? We have a five-year-old dog that we've not known previous history. So it's, I feel like it's, it's challenging. I, I always ask my students, how long do you take on, um, how long do you take taking a dietary history? And they're like, mm, five minutes. And how long do you think a, a nutritionist take? You know, I, I I work with nutritionists, so they're like, half an hour? I haven't seen them taking an hour. Wow. And, uh, you know, to be able to collect all the information they need. So I definitely don't think I do a good job in my five-minute dietary history. So for all those reasons, I often do prefer um, an idolized diet. Sure. Sure, you can kind of um, not have to worry then as much about what they've been exposed to in the past. So the other thing, too, that I noticed about this case was that, you know, you had had done a, um, a diet trial in this case. And the dog responded really well. And then the clients chose not to challenge their dog, um, which I find all the time that, yeah, we get onto a good diet and, and we say, okay, now to truly diagnose food allergy, we need to go off of this or go back onto the old food. And everybody says, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but in the cases where someone does want to conduct a food challenge, can you just run through quickly how you do that? For instance, do you just feed them their previous diet or do you actually challenge them with single ingredients? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's, uh, that's a good point. And most clients don't want to, right? Their dogs are doing so well, so they don't want to change anything. You know, they have taken time for them to get there. But when, they, when we do, I actually offer them options so they are more willing to do the challenge. So I offer them to either go back to the previous diet and 
then evaluate or they can do a sequential challenge. So what we say is like, go back, maybe most clients you're not going to believe, but most clients want to start with their favorite treats. You know, I just like, when can I introduce again, you know, those cookies or, and so that's what they want to restart. So we say, okay, fine. Just start with that one thing at a time. And then if they have pruragios somewhere else, so if they have perianal pruragios, it's a little bit easier to monitor. If recurrent NSAC disease is the only clinical sign, then you may need a little bit longer time to evaluate, right? So it becomes a little bit more challenging. So if we know the frequency, if we know that this um, patient will develop NSAC disease every four weeks, then we know that you know, we need to go a little bit longer to know if that particular allergen will trigger their anal disease. But if they do, if you have all clinical signs to monitor, like pruragios and you know other places, then it may be it may be faster. So studies have have shown that most animals actually will react within um, the first forty eight hours. So we wow. don't need to go that long. But when it's just that particular problem, then if you know the frequency, we may need to go a little bit beyond beyond that. So that becomes a little bit challenging. But most clients, if they do want to challenge, what they want is to identify what may be triggering their animal's problem. So with the sequential challenge, although it takes longer, we're more likely to do that. If we start with the previous ingredients, then I go back to a previous diet and identify the main protein, let's say chicken, and I ask them to just boil chicken and just introduce that boiled chicken to the diet that we're using. So it takes a little time, but I feel like clients feel a little bit better because this is giving them an immediate answer rather than just going back to the previous diet and then any of the ingredients on that diet may be fearing their allergy. So I just, I work with them, you know, whatever makes them feel more comfortable. Oh, that's wonderful insight. Thank you. Looking for that special clinician or veterinary nurse to fill your job opening? Job seekers from all areas of veterinary medicine can meet their ideal match on the Clinician's Brief Career Center. It's the best place to post your unique job opening and know it will be seen by that special someone. Get started at cliniciansbrief.com career center. about treatment of anal sac disease, certainly this, you know, this condition is associated with a ton of inflammation. Um, How do you really decide when you're going to be using steroids versus when you're going to be using things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like you did in this case for treating the inflammation that's associated with anal sac disease? Mm -hmm. Yes, that again, like if, Case by case, right? So in this particular case, this little chihuahua, um, she did have a little bit of facial pruritus. Uh, it wasn't 
present. I don't remember. I, I don't think it was present at the time of presentation. But the main complaint was the pain. So she actually did have an abscess. So it was very painful. And um, so non-steroidals were used in that particular case. But in cases of infection, um, anasaculitis, and if they do have other clinical signs associated, right? Allergic dogs often have uh, anasac disease, then maybe corticosteroids will be indicated in those cases. There was a, a study done, a retrospective study recently that shows that um, ointments containing corticosteroids were very effective. So if we may not need systemic therapy. We may just need, in most cases, just topical therapy, uh, mm -hmm. which minimizes side effects. So always considering, right, is there, are there other uh, clinical signs that we would like to control? Um, the pain management, um, if you have a significant infection, are you um, worried about using systemic corticosteroids? Will a topical therapy be sufficient? So all those factors we need to um, consider when deciding which type of therapy to implement. Sure. And when you're using those topical steroids, this is something that, you know, oftentimes patients will come in, they're, they're already on non-steroidals for a different condition, for their osteoarthritis pain or something like that. Um, do you ever have concerns about using the topical corticosteroids for infusion in those cases? Um, is there enough systemic absorption that it's something we need to be worried about, or is it okay to mix those? Yeah, that's, uh, that's also a very good question. And um, oof, <laughs> that's a hard question to answer. I feel like in most cases, there's definitely some systemic absorption. We always balance the benefit, right? We like, like with any treatment, we need to balance the benefit with the risk. Um, in general, uh, with topical corticosteroid, in particular with some corticosteroids like uh, mometasone that are not significantly absorbed through the skin, the um, systemic absorption can be minimal. So I feel like in most cases, um, the benefit versus the risk um, will be higher. So I feel like in most cases, I won't be too concerned. Um, about using topical corticosteroids. But I always counsel, like, you know, we always have uh, um, whoever had prescribed the non-steroidals and make sure that uh, we know that that patient is a good candidate for, um, for the topical corticosteroids. Perfect. Yeah. And probably a good place to just again, be focusing on client communication and documenting that we've, you know, talked about these potential risks, even if they are unlikely. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about oral antibiotics. Um, this is a place where oftentimes I'm not sure like when to step in and use oral antibiotics, um, because I know that oftentimes penetration into that, into the tissue can be poor. So what criteria do you use for, for giving oral antibiotics for these cases? Yes. And, uh, you know, not only penetration, but good antibiotic stewardship, right? We see so many 
persistent infection. So honestly, for most skin conditions, if possible, we like to treat them with topical therapy to minimize the exposure to systemic antibiotics. So that's a, that's a very good point. Um, I use systemic antibiotics when they have abscesses with cellulitis. So if there's cellulitis associated with the anal sac abscesses, then I do use systemic therapy. But for most cases, then again, that um, the study that have been recently published, they have very good success in most of the cases with uh, anal saculitis with just topical um, antimicrobials. So I would say if it's not a complicated case, if there's no cellulitis present, then I will, I will start with topical therapy. Could you just walk us through um, how to cannulate and flush the gland? Um, mm -hmm. Because this is another thing too, where I feel like people have different techniques. Um, if, if the gland is already fistulated, some people will go straight through the fistula as opposed to going through the duct. Um, so, so any pointers there would be really appreciated. Yes, and uh, that, that's a very good question, too. You know, when they are a little bit more involved, you know, if there is um, an, an anal sac abscess, I often consult with our surgeons. They do an excellent job with wound management, so they know all these little tricks. But in general, um, if there is fistulation, I will still candidate the dog. So just to make sure that it's open, and uh, because that may be a reason for reoccurrence, so I, I usually flash both. I, I often use a, a, a five French catheter um, to do that. It's what we use in the ear canals, it's what we, you know, we have easily available in the clinic. Um, and just, I use just saline. I'm usually worried, you know, the skin is so inflamed, so I don't know how they may react to any um, topical antiseptic. So uh, I just flashed uh, very abundantly with just saline until we until the eye is clean. That's what I usually do. But I know people do have different tricks and little things, but um, that's what I usually do. It's, it's also a very important time to evaluate I feel like these recurrent cases, and that's why sometimes I consult with our surgeons. I have the advantage that I have uh, our surgeons next door um, to evaluate the presence of fibrosis. So if we have fibrotic tissue uh, on the anal sac duct, and then, you know, if it's closed and we cannot flush them easily, that may be, um, that may be a case in which um, surgery may be indicated. So it's a good time to evaluate, especially if they have been a reoccurring case, um, you know, will this patient actually benefit from surgery, which I don't like when they get to that point. It's like PICA surgery, right? I feel like I failed them a little bit when, when they do need surgery, but unfortunately some patients will benefit from it. What kind of medications are you using for pain relief and sedation when you're when you're doing those procedures? Mm -hmm. So we usually use, um, if not contraindicated, in most cases we use dexamethasone and buprenorphine um, 
and then again if if <laughs> i am like spoiled and lucky i guess because if there is a little bit more complicated if there are comorbidities i will have my anesthesiologist involved and and have them just leave for me to do what i need to do so mm-hmm. yeah no that i mean it's wonderful when you have those those options available to you so Kind of one of the other things I wanted to talk about as a general practitioner, a lot of times owners, you know, make appointments to have the anal glands expressed, you know, and and they come in, they might not even see me. They come in, you know, as a tech appointment. Um, And sometimes I get to the case and I'm surprised to find out like they've been coming in every week to have anal glands expressed, you know. Um, So when we get to that point where we've really, you know, addressed underlying conditions and things like that, how frequently should a patient come in to have their anal glands expressed? And and if they're coming in too frequently or what's too so frequent that it should be a tip off? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And again, there's like definitely varies from patient to patient, but I feel like it's uh, often useful to think of those anal glands as part of the skin, right? And I do find, for example, in our cases that if um, we have an allergic patient, if their allergies are flaring up, their anaglans are also need to be expressed more often. So I do feel like, although it may not be uh, obvious, probably their underlying condition is not well managed. And that's why they need such a frequent um visit so i always try to see what happened why they may be flaring up you know if they're food allergic are they eating anything that they shouldn't be eating uh if they are uh if they have environmental allergies you know is the pollen count really high is this dog having a flare what is happening so i feel like it's always um and I just think of the extension of the skin, part of the skin, right? So I I do try to identify, or, you know, sometimes they may, if they're allergic, they just may need better control. It's really interesting. Sometimes the clients um, get used, I feel, to a certain level of itchiness that they may not consider abnormal. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of sad in their patients with allergies. So... And so there may be that constant inflammation that is triggering that reoccurrence. So I feel like um, I try to find a reason for it. But uh, for your question, like how frequently, I feel like it varies, but I think more than once a month is abnormal to me. I feel like it's, it shouldn't be uh, more than once a month. And, in animals with allergies, when they flare, we definitely need to do it more often. My own dog, I do have an atopic dog. Of course I do. Um, <laughs> and when his allergies are not well controlled, his anaglands definitely need to be expressed more often. More frequently. Yeah. So, so that's a good, the once a month kind of general baseline rule. <laughs> I would say yes. Or le- ideally less than that. Yes. Right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so kind of just 
ending up on that surgery. I know that's not where we want. We want to be able to control their disease before we get to that point where we do have to do surgery. But some patients, as you said, you know, really need that for their comfort um, and, and to help them. And so I know there are some complications of that, that disease. And, and I know this is the surgeon's kind of wheelhouse, but just briefly for people, what are, what are things we need to be considering and telling clients about possible complications when, when we do need to move to an anal sacculectomy? Yeah, absolutely. So although complications are not very common, they are scary, right? Because the anal sacs are associated with the anal sphincter, so they can have, uh, problems with that and, uh, you know, incontinence doesn't sound very appealing for clients at all. So it is unfortunately scary. Um, small dogs seems to be more predisposed to develop those complications, but even in a small breeds, they do seem to self-resolve. So mm-hmm. that's comforting that they don't happen very often and if they do happen they may be temporary so again even with all that positive speech uh clients get very concerned um something to keep in mind is that if it's just one side affected they usually don't develop a fecal incontinence even if the sphincters may be a little bit compromised. So the problem is more when uh, both uh, need to be done. What our surgeons usually do when I have discussed this with them is to do one, right, at the time the most affected. And then if that would go well and they have good tone, then they will consider doing the other one. And so more risky, I guess, doing both at the same Mm -hmm. time. Um, so that will be, that's usually, you know, the things that I explain to the clients and then they of course go to the surgeon and they will probably have more, um, more warnings and recommendations for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't ever really thought about staging those procedures, which is weird because I stage lots of other procedures, dental procedures (laughs) and mastectomies and things like that. So that's a really good tip too. Um, So finally, what about histopathology? Do you feel strongly that if you're going to remove these glands, they should really be sent out for histopath? I do. Um, We know that chronic inflammation may lead to neoplastic transformation, right? So, and if we have, if they um, are to need surgery, they're likely very chronic cases with recurrence. So, I would say absolutely, yes. Um, I will submit those for histopathology. And that's a general rule. I feel like if you're removing any tissue, <laughs> right, should go to should go to a pathologist. So I as a general rule, I will say yes. Yeah, I think I've said that multiple times throughout my career. If it's worth taking off, it's worth finding out what it is, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So okay. Well, we've kind of come to the end of our our episode, and at the end, uh, we do like to have a little fun, okay? (laughs) We've hit you with all these really important questions, and now it's I've got just a couple fun questions if you'd like to answer them. Let's see. Okay. (laughs) Would you rather have somebody steal your favorite pen or somebody throw away the favorite blade you use for skin scrapings? Oh, the pen. The pen. Don't touch my skin scraping blade. 
Okay. Would you rather practice without topical steroids or without oral steroids? Oh, <laughs> you're killing me here. They're mean, aren't they? <laughs> I would say, oof. Oh, that's a hard one to answer. Um, I will rather live with without oral corticosteroids. Okay. Would you rather find out the puppy you were just snuggling is covered in scabies, or would you rather have a client want to show you their rash? <laughs> the puppy with scabies. <laughs> All right. Last question, okay. Would you rather have to do lime sulfur dips on 10 kitten-sized Tyrannosaurus rexes or one T-Rex-sized kitten? <laughs> Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, one. <laughs> one giant T-Rex size. That would be a lot of lime sulfur. <laughs> giant one. Uh, yes. Oh, that was so much fun. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the podcast today. This has been really wonderful information. We truly appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge with our audience today. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed our episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including a video version now available on YouTube. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to or watch our podcast episodes on our website at cliniciansbreathe.com podcasts, or drop us a line at podcasts at breathemedia.com. Clinician Breathe the Podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery and hosted by Dr. Alyssa Watson.